0: Hey of Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnac Files. It has been five weeks since my last episode analysis, and I am so ready to get into it with you guys. This time we are talking 301 The Battle Joined, written by Ron Moore and directed by Brendan Mayer. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and recently we have been added onto Audible and Pandora. So if you listen to podcasts anywhere on those platforms, make sure to subscribe to the Sassanac Files. And if you have been listening to the Sassanac Files, please, please, please make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite spot. Make sure to follow the Sassneck Files on both Instagram and Facebook for all of your social media needs. You can get all kinds of interesting news and tidbits about Outlander, the Outlander universe, the actors and actresses who make our show so wonderful. And of course, I like to play some fun games. So right now we are working on the best episode of season four bracket. We just did the buy rounds this week, voted on those. So we are looking at Blood of My Blood, The Birds and the Bees, and America the Beautiful as our buy round episodes, which means that you guys like them enough to give them a pass on the first round of voting. So yay. I 100% agree with you guys. Like That doesn't often happen with these voting things. But yes, I was very happy that those three episodes got selected because those would have been my picks. So yeah, make sure to like and follow on social media and with all of the announcements out of the way, let's get into the meat of this episode, which is talking about season three. Finally, finally get into season three. I love season three. So excited to talk about the battle join today. And this episode was Ron Moore's final episode that he wrote for the screen, and he said that when they got the renewal for season three, he kind of knew that he was going to start delegating things and that he was really going to take a step back from the show because it is a huge show and it takes a lot of effort, especially since it's being filmed internationally. It's just a lot. He called it the perpetual treadmill between Scotland and Los Angeles, which has got to be rough. So I totally understand. And this episode was a great finale for him. The battle Joined is so fantastic. I can't wait to talk about it. So many things that I love about this episode. It was a great season premiere. I'm going to break this up today. We're going to talk about, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme over the course of the next four episodes, is that we're going to talk about Jamie's storyline. We're going to talk about Claire's storyline. We're going to talk about how they intersect. And we're going to talk about all of the other good stuff in between. But this was something that I came up with when I was reading the official guide to Outlander because one thing that all of the head honchos, so Matt Roberts, Tony Graffia, Meryl Davis, Ron Moore, they all kind of agreed when they were breaking down the season three episodes and how they were going to be written and they were consulting with the writer's room, that they were going to keep Jamie and Claire separate for as long as possible That decision means that we don't ever see them in the same frame with each other through these first four episodes. And I say four because episode five is Freedom and Whiskey and Jamie's not in that episode at all until the very, very, very end. (laughs) So the first four episodes, they made the executive decision to keep Jamie and Claire Out of each other's frames, and I thought this was a genius way to do it. And the only exception to this is when Claire comes to Jamie in his hallucination slash dream when he's dying on Culloden Field. That's the only exception to this rule. So it's very fascinating to pay attention to that, having that in mind that we never ever see them together. And it was great that Tonya Graffia stated. She said. It's not about seeing Jamie and Claire together. It's about making the scenes that they have separately about them together, either by mention or emotion. And a great example of this is one parallel moment. When Jamie sees the rabbit on the field at Culloden, he immediately thinks of Claire. And that's what summons this image for him. When Claire sees the bird in her kitchen on her windowsill. She's pretending that it's Jamie talking to her. So, it's about bringing Jamie into a scene with Claire without him physically being there and vice versa. It's about bringing Claire into a scene with Jamie without Claire actually being there. So, it's a very clever way that the writers did this. And that's what I enjoy so much about these first few episodes is that it took a great level of creativeness to make this different. It's very easy for a show to fail when your leads are not on screen together. And that is one thing that the network was very scared about when they went to stars and said, yeah, we're not making Jamie and Claire's reunion until episode six and stars panicked a little bit because it's like, what, you're not going to have Jamie and Claire together. How is this going to work? Well, stars, this is how it's going to work. Okay. And it was great. I love it. So, The challenge in writing these episodes was in Voyager, Jamie's storyline over the course of the 20 years they're apart is very clear cut. His different stories, like each of these episodes, are broken down into an individual chapter. It's very easy, cut and dry, to adapt Jamie's point of view. The problem lies in where we are getting Claire's story from because. All of these little situations that we are seeing in season three are spattered throughout the books. Most of it happens in Voyager, but some of it does happen like we get accounts of these different instances in different books that they went ahead and placed chronologically in season three. So it was very... Intense research on the part of the writer's assistants is my guess. I'm sure the writers did some of their research, but the writer's assistants are the workhorses. So that was interesting to see how they formatted this, knowing that the books have a different storytelling technique and you can illustrate things in a book differently than how you have to tell the story on screen, which is one thing that Matt Roberts brought up, which I thought was extremely interesting because he's right. You can't jump around. All the time in a TV show, or people are going to get confused. It's going to keep the watchers from getting engaged in the show. You have to tell it in a chronological order 90% of the time so that people understand the consequences of something that is happening. Granted, there's 10% of the time where you can throw the audience for a loop and catch them up later, but they already did that in season two by skipping into the 40s in Through a Glass Darkly. So you don't want to do that too much or it becomes repetitive and people get tired of that kind of thing. Bringing up Through a Glass Darkly kind of segues nicely into my next topic. So we'll talk about Claire's storyline. And Claire's story was interesting because they made the creative choice in 201 to tell What happened to her right after she went through the stones in the season two premiere. So we get all of that information up front and it's backloaded into what we are seeing in season three. We already have that in our mental catalog of what Claire has gone through. So as a writer, as a creator, where do you pick up Claire's storyline? Well, the natural progression of things was to pick up in Boston. That's where we left Claire and Frank in 201. They were getting off the plane in Boston, and everything was propelling forward, and then we did that brilliant exchange of the camera on hands, and suddenly she was back in the 18th century, and we had this season-long flashback. Claire's storyline picks up in a different place than Jamie's does, simply because we've already done this song and dance. We don't want the viewers to have to re-watch You know, rewatch what has already been said. So this was another problem in pulling what Claire's storyline was going to be for season three and what Jamie's was. Because Claire's storyline does not pass at the same rate of exchange as Jamie's does. We get a lot more of her story in a shorter amount of time. We're passing over the entire 20 years And getting snippets here and snippets there, whereas Jamie's is a very contained storyline with a single arc over the course of an episode. So it's very interesting that they can draw these parallels, even though we're passing time at a different rate of speed. So, that being said, when Claire is in Boston, obviously she's grieving Jamie, but she has to keep that private because of the agreement that she made with Frank that. She would let Jamie go, and she would try. She would try with Frank, and they would raise her and Jamie's child together. That was the agreement. So we really see that, I think, in these first few scenes with Claire and Frank. There's this level of playfulness, and you can tell that Claire is struggling, that she's grieving. But overall, it it appears that things are going well. Especially in that first scene where they're walking through the house and Frank is giving her the tour, and he's like, Well, the study can be wherever the lady of the house desires. And she's like, Well, the lady of the house desires it thus. You know, you see almost the recognizable dynamic that we got with Frank and Claire in season one. In that first episode, when they were together and there was this comfort they had in each other, it was very sweet. And you kind of see recalls of that and you can tell that they want to get back to that place. Like they don't want it to be awkward and uncomfortable, but undeniably there's a big redheaded elephant in the room named Jamie Fraser. You know, Claire is very much in love with him and always will be. And this is the problem because Frank is very much in love with Claire. So we have a problem. And that's what this episode and subsequent episodes are really about, is this growing rift between Frank and Claire. And it's not that they don't want to make things work, especially after Brianna is born. Like, they want things to work for her sake. But it's just, it's getting harder and harder to bridge the gap, I guess would be the best way to put it. I guess the primary place that we see this, like, we build up all through the episode on the tension between Frank and Claire, but it comes to this climax in this argument that they have in the middle of the episode. And it starts out just like any other conversation. They're making Frank's making jokes about tea bags, calling them little paper diapers. And Claire's like, Oh, well, that's one of the things that I love about this country is how new everything is. And, They're always moving forward and being progressive and making changes, you know? They're not stuck in the past, I guess, is what she's saying. And she says that she wants to apply for citizenship, which Frank is, I think, honestly, really receptive to at first. He doesn't have a problem with her applying for citizenship, especially when she says, Well, I want our child to have a home. Like, you can feel this giddiness almost that he has at the prospect of being a father and he's like our child like you know like oh my gosh our child and he reaches to touch claire's belly and she jerks away from him i really feel for frank in this episode i have never felt for frank before like obviously i feel twinges of sympathy but i never really bothered to stop and think about his position in this whole craziness of this storyline, you know, the guy agreed to take his wife back, who had been married to another man for three years, slept with him, got pregnant with his baby. He agreed to take her back in spite of all of that. I mean, I guess it was a little naive of him to think that everything was going to be sunshine and roses, like if he thought that then clearly he had no idea what Jamie and Claire's relationship like the depth of that but nevertheless Claire agreed to try to make things work with him and from his point of view she's not really holding up her end of the bargain she won't even let him touch her really which from Claire's perspective a he's not Jamie and she's really grieving his loss but b He looks exactly like Blackjack Randall. Like, and I guess that is kind of where one of you mentioned, I kind of wish we had got her PTSD on that point. And I guess this is kind of it. This whole, she won't let him touch her. She's very standoffish. So I think that might be the other half of it, honestly. But it's got to be really discouraging for Frank. And I absolutely love this exchange of words that they have in their argument because Frank has been talking about whatever happened to being able to scoop tea out of a tin and put it into a pot. Like there was nothing wrong with doing it that way and talking about the good old days and things like that. So Frank and Claire have this exchange and Claire gets up and walks away because he's like no, you don't need to apply for citizenship. It's okay. Like, my job allows us to live here indefinitely. And she's like, that's not what this is about. What it's about for her is, once again, trying to sever her connection with Britain, with Scotland, with Jamie. She's trying so hard to move on and make a new life for herself and doing everything she can possibly do. And... When Frank says no, she's like, what the hell? You know, she's so frustrated. And she's like, that's not what this is about. And he says, I know that. Like, and he tries to touch her hand and she jerks it away. He's like, that's what this is about. Like, yes, Jamie. Jamie is what it's about. Always. Always. And that's what spurs this argument. You know, Claire says, you asked me to leave behind everything. Everything that truly mattered to me, and yet it's fine for you to go on about the things you've missed in the good old days. Never talk about the past. That was the bargain. To which he replies, No, the bargain was that we raise this baby together, our child, and it hasn't even been born yet, and you will not let me in, let alone touch you, God forbid. You really get the feeling that this is Claire and Frank's relationship now. It sucks. It is hard. It never used to be hard before. And now, with Jamie thrown into the mix, not even physically Jamie, the memory of Jamie, the way that Jamie made Claire feel, it's his ghost, literally this entire episode and everything that Claire does. It's so interesting. And at the end of this argument, Frank makes a comment. He's like, you know, go or stay, but don't do it for me. Do it for you, essentially. I mean, it's not the specific words, but he's like, I'm not forcing you to stay here. And if it's not making you happy, if it's not working, then go. But do it because that's what you want to do. And it's really just like... Every time something happens, it's driving the knife further and further into Frank's heart and twisting it more and more. And it sucks. And then we see where he's not even sleeping in his bed because of this argument the night Claire goes into labor. I guess I never really thought about the intent behind Frank writing that letter to the reverend, mainly because... It's very different in the books and what Frank did or didn't know and how he went about it, it's all very cloak and dagger. You don't have very many details about it. And so seeing Frank toss and turn on the couch and then go over to his desk and turn on this light and start writing this letter. Dear Reverend Wakefield, I would like for you to take on a bit of research regarding a Highlander who fought in the Battle of Culloden, James Fraser. It makes me wonder, and I think this was the intent of kind of leaving it open-ended, was Frank writing that letter to satisfy his own curiosity or because of what he had told Claire and like, if you're not happy here, then go, like, don't stay for me. You know, is he wanting to find out if Jamie is alive so that he can tell her and send her back if she would like to go? Is that the motivation or is it more just for his own interests? Which really kind of sucks considering he made her put down all research and leave it behind and said, you know, no combing the libraries of the world looking for him. Like, you have to let him go. And yet Frank is here writing letters to the Reverend like, hey, can you see if this guy's survived Culloden? That really sucks. So I'm not really sure how to feel about the letter. If Frank wrote it with the intention of telling Claire what he found, that would be different. But I mean, clearly he doesn't tell her what they found because what happens in season four, you know? Most of you guys probably know what happens in season four. I won't give away the details, but this research that Frank is doing for Janie... Ends up turning up some results, which really, like, I get it, but at the same time, it also kind of makes me really angry (laughs) on Claire's behalf. So, uh, we'll leave it there until we get to that episode in season four. But yeah, Claire's storyline is just plagued with. I mean, she's come back in the late 40s, and the late 40s was a really tough time for women anyway. I mean, we're coming out on the heels of World War II, where women have finally got some semblance of respect, like societal respect. They had a position in life. They weren't just baby-making machines who kept the house clean and made dinner for their husbands. They were on the front lines. They were nurses. They were uh, mechanics. They were doing all of these things. They weren't in combat positions, but they kept the home front going, and they served in the military. So women were very empowered compared to how they had been in the 30s and the early 40s before the war. And then when World War II ended, the men came home and they just expected the women to go back to where they had always been, in the kitchen, in the nursery, and everything would go back to normal. But women weren't willing to accept that for the most part. Um, I mean, a lot of them did because they weren't given a choice. But it doesn't mean it didn't irk them. It certainly would have pissed me off to just be like, "Yeah, I know that you were uh, a nurse on the front lines and you saved all of these lives, but uh, I'm gonna expect you to just have my children and do my laundry and go about your business, okay?" Thanks, sweet pea. Oh boy, yeah, that would have that would have really made me mad. And I think. That's just as a woman. I don't think that that's really anything that is out of the ordinary or that it's um, presentism. I think that that's close enough to my own time that I can say that without bias. That it really probably ticked a lot of women off. And so there's that punctuated by how Claire is treated by these men of authority in this episode. We get it first when Claire is at the meeting with Frank and the dean. And he's like, Oh, Frank, you're going to have to keep an eye on what your wife's reading, like columns in the globe. And then he's like, Oh, well, yeah, now you can go back to more fitting domestic concerns, blah, blah, blah. And talking about how women aren't successful in their studies and they make poor medical practitioners. Oh my god, like this guy. Literally the misogyny in this episode just freaking, it makes me mad. And I don't know, like I feel like maybe I should ask my grandmas. Both of my grandmas are still alive and they grew up in the late 40s and the 50s. And I am I guess I probably just should ask them, like, what was it really like? Which it might be different for them because they really grew up in the 50s, whereas... Like, they were Brianna's age. They were born around that time. Like, 47 is when they were born. So uh, they're they're a year older than Brie would be. So that is probably more of their developmental period when Brianna's in her formative years. So I'm not really sure if they'd be able to answer my question, but it's interesting. If any of my listeners are of that age um, or they remember stories of what their mothers had to say on it, um, I'd be very interested to know what the actual climate was because the show certainly paints it as men patronized women and put them in, tried to put them in their place if they tried to step outside the black and white world that had been created prior to World War II, which I could certainly see happening. I mean, Lord, it happens now, not necessarily on this scale, but it certainly seems realistic. So. Please let me know if you have anything to say on the subject. Yeah, I just, I find this so fascinating. And then we see it again in, um, when Claire's in labor, when the doctor looks to Frank and is like, how far apart are her contractions? And Frank's like, I don't know. Claire's like, they're three minutes apart. And the doctor just constantly looks to Frank. He doesn't ask Claire any questions, like, any previous children. And Frank's like, no. And then Claire's like, actually, yes, I had a miscarriage a year ago. So that's really just so shitty. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. The last thing that I want to talk about on Claire's storyline is the end they kind of give Claire this twilight drug um, for delivery, which was a thing in the 50s, apparently. Like, that's so interesting to me. But this, it's against her wishes. It's not what she wants. And they do it anyway because the doctor knows best. So, so... Disgust me. And it's even more heartbreaking because of what happened with Faith. Like, Claire lost consciousness when she was miscarrying Faith. She almost died. And when she regained consciousness, she woke up to find that she had literally lost all control of everything and her baby was dead. It was just awful. And so Claire is reliving that as she wakes up. Once again, like, it's the exact same. She comes out of this unconscious state. She grips her belly, realizes she's not pregnant anymore. And is asking the nurse, Where is my baby? Where is my baby? Is it dead? And then, you know, Frank comes in with Brianna and everything's good. But for that split second, Claire is just panicking. And I felt so awful for her in that moment that she was reliving this traumatic incident where she lost her first child and that a doctor did that to her because he wouldn't listen to her wishes. It just boils my blood it really does. The scene at the end was, I felt so good because, you know, Claire is apologizing to Frank and she's like, I've been so horrid to you. And he's saying it doesn't matter. And they agreed that this is going to be a fresh start for them, that they're going to use Brianna's birth as a new beginning for them. And then the nurse comes in and says, oh beautiful little angel where'd she get the red hair and it just implodes it just i'm like why couldn't you just let us have that one moment you know like rip it to bits in the next episode but i really didn't agree with the way they ended that the episode that's the one thing that i really didn't agree with so that concludes claire and frank's storyline And, of course, the big portion of this episode is Jamie's storyline. But I feel like what's so powerful about Jamie's storyline is how it's edited. Because Jamie, for the majority of this episode, is out of it. He's lost so much blood and by the end he's boiling with fever. So he's not really cognizant of what's happening a lot of the time. But I love the way that this was cut, especially with the Battle of Culloden. Ron Moore was saying that in his initial draft, like, they knew when they were breaking down the episodes that the first episode of season three was going to have to have the Battle of Culloden. They'd been teasing it for two seasons. It had to be mentioned. And so he literally just went full tilt with it on his first draft. He had it all from Jamie and Myrta's perspective, and they were going to lay out the entire battle. And when he took it to stars, they said, this is way out of our budget. We can't do this. If we do this, it's going to impact the budget for the rest of the season. There are things that you want to do now, later on, that we're not going to be able to do. That's all going to have to be scaled down. So they came up with the idea of making this a very intense, emotional journey for Jamie. And having all of these bits and pieces of the battle embedded as memories. And by doing it that way, you can scale down the shoot and make it, okay, we're going to film this over here. And then we're going to film this little bit over here. And you put it all together and it makes it look like a bigger event, but you don't have to have a full on reenactment to get the effect that you need. So it's very great the way that they did that. And you still end up getting all of these core pieces. And each of these moments, the fight with Blackjack. The encounter with Myrta, the scene with Bonnie Prince Charlie before the battle, all of these things were in Ron Moore's original script, but they filmed them as individual little scenes. It wasn't like a consistent battle, it wasn't one huge, massive reenactment. So I thought that that was very clever the way that they did this. So they're intercutting these memories with Jamie laying on the field, dying, he's bleeding out. And it's intense. Sam did such an amazing job acting this. It's so hard to lay on a field and not have anything but the stage direction. Jamie's eyelids flutter. He opens his eyes and he is remembering flashes of the Battle of Culloden. Like, literally, this is probably his stage instructions. And to make that enigmatic and dynamic, that is so, like, that takes talent. It takes so much talent. So I applaud Sam so much for that. And also the editing team for cutting this. Like, for instance, I'm not going to go into all of the gory details, but one of my favorite parts is when Jamie is remembering saying goodbye to Claire and it shows him with his hand on the stone and then he's smelling her shawl and then it cuts away and he bends down to pick up the shawl and then it cuts away and he's smelling the shawl. It's all different angles of the same thing. And it's like he's remembering it in his head, but it's all jumbled because of like the mental state that he is in he's just almost catatonic and it's amazing like you really just feel like you're inside his head the way that they cut this together it's so fantastic and so jamie is laying on the field and then we remember this fight this one encounter that he had with blackjack randall This ongoing storyline that we've had finally comes to a culmination, and I really did enjoy this scene. The particular days that they fought these battle sequences, they did them around sunset, and they had the absolutely most gorgeous sunsets those nights. And whenever they put the smoke in the air and everything, it just created this hazy amber glow. It was phenomenal. And it was just really gorgeous. And Sam and Tobias did all of their original stunts on those scenes. So it's all them, no stuntman. And when Blackjack reaches out and puts his hand on Jamie and they kind of halfway, like, Jack falls into Jamie and they both topple over. That was all figured out on the day. That was not written into the script, and I felt like that was literally screen gold. Like, I know some people do not care for it, and that is fine. You're entitled to your opinion. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but I personally loved it because the majority of Jamie's story has revolved around this villain, and their lives are so interconnected. It's insane. And yet, when it comes down to it, they both end up laying on the ground on the field of Culloden, either dead or dying. And it's so interesting to see this. It's poetic, really, that the hero and the villain are taken down in the same swift motion. Of course, Jamie survives, but There's really just something so powerful about that moment when Jack just reaches out and touches Jamie. And Jamie's so beyond caring at that point. Like, they're both absolutely exhausted. They're both wounded. They're both suffering from blood loss. And they just topple over and fall to the ground. What's really interesting about that plot point is that Jack really ends up saving Jamie's life because his body on top of Jamie's keeps him from bleeding to death. I don't know how realistic that is, but that's kind of what the show had in mind by doing it this way, that Jack is the cause of a lot of suffering, but in the end, he's also the reason Jamie survives as well. So it's it's super interesting. And as Jamie lays dying, he sees Claire. And this is, like I said, the one time that we see Jamie and Claire in frame together until they're reunited. but. It's a powerful moment. It's absolutely beautiful. I love the dark scene with the moon. Katrina dressed all in white. It's just this ethereal quality that gives me goosebumps when I watch it. And their theme playing in the background. So gorgeous. And then Jamie's kind of jerked out of his dream by Rupert. Are you alive, man? And Jamie's like, just let me be, like, let me die. I just want to die. And he was so close. He was so close, guys. And so I know back in the very first episode of the Sasnak Files, I promised you guys that I would give you guys my theory on Jamie's ghost when we got to the episode, The Battle joined. Here we are, Obsessinax. So I feel like I can talk about it now. So Diana Gabaldon was asked in an interview, how old is Jamie, the ghost version of Jamie? Like, how old is he? And Diana said, without skipping a beat, she was like, he's 25 or 26. Well, that's how old he is at the Battle of Culloden. You know, when he almost dies. So my theory And this is just my theory. And like Diana has said, she's read a lot of theories on the subject and none of them have been right. So I'm sure mine's just going to get added to the heap of things that are not accurate or right. But my theory on it is that he astral projected to the time that he ended up on on Samhain looking up at Claire's window. Because he just wanted to see her again. That's all he wanted in life. He wanted to see her again. He's laying on the field bleeding to death. He never thinks he's going to see Claire again because he sent her back through the stones. It's all he wants. And Jamie has gifts. Like, he has supernatural abilities. They're very subtle, but he has a sight. And I think that this is the first that we see of that. We do get mention of it a few more times in the series. But um, yeah, th- that's kind of my hypothesis. So we will see, maybe someday, if book 10 ever comes out. <laughs> we'll see if I was right. But that's my... I promised you guys I would tell you my theory, and I have delivered. So, all right. Whew. Man, I almost forgot. I was writing my notes. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I was writing my notes for this episode and i was like oh shoot i have to talk about that so i wrote it in big black letters across the top of my notes theory on jamie's ghost <laughs> so so yes you're welcome we get this transition where rupert has taken jamie to this barn or house or whatever it is with all these other wounded men i don't really know i mean i know that Rupert's goal was to save his friend, but with the Redcoats searching everything, I'm not really sure what the train of thought was on how they weren't going to be discovered. (laughs) I mean, I guess hiding in a barn is a little bit less conspicuous than staying on the field and either freezing to death or being stabbed by a bayonet, but... I don't know. I just, it just kind of seems like you're postponing the inevitable. Regardless, a troop of redcoats ends up finding the men hiding in the barn. And the redcoat in charge is none other than Harold Gray, Viscount Melton, which ends up being Lord John's older brother. And having read the Lord John series this summer, I absolutely love Hal. He is one of my favorite characters of the Outlander universe. And I can't wait to get to the later books of the Outlander series where he plays a more prominent part because I absolutely adore him now after getting more of his story. But I thought that the actor that portrayed him did a really good job in the limited amount of time that he had to kind of convey who Hal is at heart because he really, he's a stickler for things, but he's also very honorable and he does have a soft spot and he is actually very kind. He's a gray. I mean, he's Lord John's brother. He's got to have a gentle side, but he's also a soldier and he follows orders. So I feel like there was a good Proportion of both in this episode. We see where he's like, Yeah, you'll be shot, not hung. So there's your honor. And then he's also like, If you would like to write letters to your family, you have one hour and you can see the clerk in my company for paper and writing implements. So he's merciful in this moment. And then, of course, he ends up saving Jamie's life because of this sense of honor that he has. What is really interesting in this moment is that Hal knows who Jamie is. Like, he knows. And Jamie's trying to talk him out of it. He's like, no, like, I won't tell anybody if you kill me. (laughs) Like, uh, Jamie is just, he's miserable. I'm sure he feels, like, absolute hogwash at this point. Like, he's running a fever. He's suffering from blood loss his leg is probably just throbbing in the moments that he is conscious and he's had to leave Claire like literally there's nothing that he has left worth fighting for in his mind so he really thought that he was finally going to get to die and then Hal's like no I'm not going to kill you because my brother said he owes you a debt of honor which in hindsight yeah that's. That's fantastic. Like, Jamie survived Culloden. <laughs> Who saw that coming? It's a rhetorical question because he's our hero and he's not gonna die. <laughs> but yeah, it's just seeing how he ends up getting out of all of these death defying experiences is the interesting part, I suppose. <laughs> so he gets sent back to Lollybrock, but. Before all of this goes down is the real kind of meat and potatoes of Jamie's storyline for me, honestly. And that's him saying goodbye to these men as they are marched out to be executed. The first one is kind of anticlimactic in my view because it's Gordon Kellick. I mean, the sentiment behind the scene was 100% there because he's like, do you want me to write a letter for you, Jamie? And he's, Jamie's just like, let it be. And he's like, what about your wife? What about Claire? And Jamie's like, she's gone. Like, here's what I want to know. How does Jamie know this person? Who is this person even? I get the sentiment behind it. And it was great. And it gives us a chance to see Jamie's grief. But he's also really resigned to his fate as well. Gordon says, I'll be taking my leave of you now, Jamie. And Jamie says, I'll see you again soon. Like, just comforting words. Like, it's not for long. Like, I'm right behind you. Jamie doesn't seem afraid of his fate. And I think that's probably the purpose of this scene. And then, of course, the one that always gets me is when Rupert is saying goodbye to Jamie. Because this is the last man standing. This is the last Highlander. Because we don't know what happened to Myrta at this point. This is the last Highlander, and he we've known Rupert since day one, and now we're getting his swan song, his goodbye, and it's just, it's so sad, especially given where we left Rupert at the end of season two, he had witnessed Jamie killing Dougal, and he says to Jamie, I'm not saying I forgive you for Dougal, but I'll not go to my grave hating you for it either. The Lord will judge us, both, and I trust in his mercy. And, oh, God. And they're talking about Angus. And Rupert's like, it'll be good to see him again. And Jamie says, it'll be good to see the two of you together. It's just this parting of friends. And it's such good dialogue. And then, you know, he's, Rupert is tough right up till the end. He's like... As he's being marched out to the execution, he's like, I mean to keep a quick pace, so try to keep up. And then when the guns sound, Jamie says, farewell, Rupert in gallic And it makes me want to cry. It's so, it's so touching. And the music just swells around that moment. Like it's ripe for tears. So that all being said, that kind of drops us from Jamie's storyline. Obviously, we have the wagon ride. Back to Lollybrock, which sets us up very nicely for where episode two picks up. But overall, that's the meat and potatoes of the episode, guys. So, obviously, I don't think it's stretching anybody's imaginations to say that my performance of the episode was Sam Hewen, because come on, he's Sam Hewen. And (laughs) this episode was so good for him, it was such a strong bit of acting. It's very minimalistic. He's mortally wounded basically for the entire time, yet his performances were so powerful and meaningful and emotional. It just, he blows my mind. Every time I watch this episode from day one, I was like, he's amazing. And that has not changed. So performance of the episode goes to Sam Hewen. And then as far as quote of the episode, I had two. My quote of the episode was when Rupert saves Jamie from the battlefield and he says, I'm not going to leave you to die in the mud, even if you are a pig heated loon who canna hold his whiskey. And that's why we love Rupert, right? And honestly, like, what made that line even more was Jamie's, like, slurred, half-unconscious reply of, I'll drink you under the table. And then he says, your ass you can. <laughs> like, it's just this, it's not even lighthearted, but it's hell of a lot more lighthearted than what we have been dealing with. So I love that. And then we transition into the 20th century, but... There was just something about that line that always grabs me. And then my honorable mention for the episode was, I didn't force this bargain on you, Claire. I didn't force you to come to Boston, and I'm not forcing you to stay. Go or stay, but please do it because it's what you really want to do. And that's why I love Frank. He's like, I'm not forcing you to stay, okay? Do what makes you happy. There's no sense in this if it's making us both miserable. And he loves her enough to let her go if that's what she wants. So, yes. Like, I just love that. I thought it said so much about Frank's character and about where the story is going. Love it. Love it, love it. So that concludes what I have to say on the episode. But as always with these analysis episodes, I opened it up to the masses to see what you guys had to say. And I got some good responses. So without further ado, let's move into listener comments. So my first comment is from Linda Monroe. She says, Why did Blackjack Randall have to fall on Jamie in death? I hated that scene. I wanted Jamie to push him off into oblivion. And I get your feelings, Linda. I really do, because I think we're just programmed at this point to absolutely hate Jack Randall's guts, right? I mean, how could we not after everything he has done to Jamie and Claire? But at the same time, like it's not necessarily about that. It's it's basically saying that death is an even playing field. I mean, I thought it was kind of poetic, honestly. Like I said in the episode that in the end, like, it doesn't matter, and that they've literally fought so long and so hard, and they've been adversaries, that there's there's something so powerful about them just falling over together. Rebecca Ann says, I love all the Frank and Claire, minus the, why does the child have red hair, or whatever the nurse said when Brianna was born. I think they did well with Blackjack Randall slash Jamie Standoff, but I would have loved a bit more. Both are just fantastic in scenes together. See, so there's flip sides of the coin. So you got one person like me who actually really loved it and one person that didn't like it. So it's a very polarizing decision. But in the end, I mean, like I said, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I get both sides. Like I get that Blackjack is an absolutely horrible human being, And you don't want to see anything less than the very worst happen to him. And on the other hand, the fact that literally it doesn't matter. Whatever happened doesn't matter. And I think there's this wonderful quote in season one. It says, death visits each door with impartial foot. Something like that. Like it's a Shakespeare quote. And I I just thought that it was, it's very interesting that they portrayed this that way. And like I said, that was something that was decided on the day. That wasn't something that was actually written into the script. So that's also interesting that they kind of, I think Tobias came up with that actually. So super cool. And my final comment for today is from Joan Cohen. She always has very insightful things. So let's see what she has to say. She says, this is one of my favorite episodes, visually and emotionally stunning. I must have watched the first 15 minutes half a dozen times. The hallucinatory and fragmented quality of Jamie's recollections as he drifts in and out of consciousness works so well to help us feel all the sound, fury, and confusion of battle. I loved the moment when Jamie and Blackjack Randall spy each other. That was absolutely gorgeous, Joan. Sorry, I'm going to interject here as I read your comment because I just love reading what you have to say. The light changes and everything else fades into the background. They are so intent on their death dance. I actually like the blackjack Randall fell on top of Jamie and saved his life. He redeemed himself to a certain extent in that moment. When Claire walks across the battlefield in her white pinoir, I thought maybe Jamie was having an out-of-body experience since he was so close to death, and that was when he traveled back to Inverness to see her in the window. So I'm not the only one that feels that way. Hey, Joan, we're theory buddies. <laughs> Anyway, Joan continues, I did go back to check season one, episode one, but she's wearing a different white robe. So much for that theory. Hey, you know what? It could still be that way. I think they dressed her all in white just to give her this ethereal angel quality, but that's very interesting. And actually, I think her robe in that episode is like a blush color with a champagne 90 under it, but I absolutely love her costume. That's why I remember that. <laughs> anyway, okay, I'm going to keep going. On a side note, the young man with the red hair that gets bayoneted reminds me of Ed Sheeran. Oh my god, yes. The farmhouse scene is very much the way I pictured it. It was heart-wrenching to watch Jamie listen to all his friends and kin be shot, waiting for his own turn, yet there were those few grimly humorous moments. Rupert's farewell, Jamie's remarks to Lord Melton. That worked so well. Sam's face acting is phenomenal. I read somewhere... That he spoke a total of 75 words in this episode. He said so much more with his expressions. Wow, 75 words? That's phenomenal. Like, I never even would have guessed. But yeah, he doesn't really talk that much. And one thing that... That is the end of Joan's comment, by the way. And I'm just so fascinated by everything she has to say. (laughs) Um... So one thing that I did notice, because you said like he only says 75 words, Um, when I was reading Clanlands, Sam was talking about this episode, and he said that whenever they filmed him laying in the field dying, and he's got that like sound to his breathing, he said that is actually all legitimate breath sounds for him because the day before... They had spent the entire day filming the battle sequence with him screaming his head off the entire time. And he said he barely had a voice and his his vocal cords were just raw. So that rattling sound and his breathing is actually his vocal cords because they were just so destroyed from the scene the previous day. So I found that very fascinating as well. But yes, Joan, like all of it. I love reading your comments. Anyway, guys, so yeah, that uh, concludes everything that I have to say and you guys have to say about 301, the battle joined. And uh, before I close out for the episode, I do want to share some exciting news with you. So first on the agenda, Men in Kilts has announced that they have a premiere date of February 14th, so set your calendars. February 14th will be here very soon. And um honestly, I think that is probably the slot that Outlander Season 6 was supposed to have. Which makes me really sad to think about. I think that's probably when season six would have premiered, but they've been holding on to Men and Kilts because they knew that they weren't going to have season six for a very long time. Exciting news on that front though, that Little Birdie told me they are supposed to start filming season six later this week. January 6th is supposed to be go day. So we will see if Instagram is flooded with an inundation of filming pictures. I seriously can't wait. I'm so excited. And so for those of you that are Netflix watchers, you do not subscribe to the stars show and you are not like 100% caught up. I have really good news for you because in the United States, season four of Outlander is going to hit Netflix on January 27th, so you will have an entirely new season to watch and you can listen to me and my sweet voice all the way through my season four analysis. So, so happy to bring you that news. I'm glad that I have something Outlander related Uh, Sam wrapped filming on his new movie text for you on Christmas Eve. So he is now back in Scotland and this is all coming from his lips directly from an interview that I shared on Facebook. But um, he said that after the new year, which is today, I'm filming on January 1st, 2021. So after the new year, it was straight back to work on Outlander. And then I heard from a couple different sources that uh, filming was supposed to start on January 6th. So. Hopefully next time I talk to you guys, I have some exciting news from the set to share, so fingers crossed on that. Make sure to join me next week where I talk Season 3, Episode 2, Surrender. Until then, stay safe out there. Happy New Year, and hopefully all of your dreams and wishes that you had for 2020 come true in 2021. Here's to a better year than we had last year, and I'm so happy to be on this journey with you guys. Cheers, and I'll chat at you next week. Bye.